Thank you, Adam. Um, even as we were praying for Vigilant Hope, the ministry uh, also had in had in mind uh, those that are being helped, and we're here now, and uh, the rain is coming down, and it's hard, and uh, is in, in, impeding some of our hearing and ability to hear. And my mind uh, went to the men and women who are without shelter now, right here in Wilmington, who are having to face uh, these elements right now. Um, and uh, the least they have to worry about is the sound uh, of the rain on the rooftop, uh, because they're not under the rooftop. Uh, and I'm not saying that to play on your emotion, just to say that when we talk about those who are homeless, that is a very real thing, and it's real here uh, in our community, uh, and uh, real right here in the Wilmington area, and we would not have to drive far, find people who are living in the woods right now, living in tents, uh, trying to make uh, a go of it into elements. Just remind you of that. So as you see these announcements that are regularly in uh, in our worship guide, I think at times, in fact, I know I was even thinking this week, um, we, I think we see it so much that we've just kind of become numb to it unless we put forth a real effort there. And I want to encourage you, if you will, to give consideration uh, to that. If you have your copies of Scripture, if you will, uh, turn to uh, Exodus, uh, beginning in chapter 3, Exodus chapter 3. Uh, I know our text today, as is listed in the worship guide, and as you have uh, known throughout the week, uh, encompasses four chapters. And as you already know, we're not doing verse-by-verse -verse exposition uh, of Exodus, though that would certainly be a worthy thing to do. But uh, we are targeting the major themes of redemption uh, that are seen in Israel's Exodus event. That's what is guiding us. Uh, there's no other Old Testament event that reveals as much about God and His commitment to redemption than this single event uh, and the surrounding narrative and all that's taking place. And so I just want to remind us of that as we, uh, as we begin to approach our text uh, today. Um, because you have heard so much emphasis on the name of God, and we started with our call to worship in speaking of the name of God. Uh, Booney said Yahweh. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to say that with you, Yahweh, okay? Uh, Booney often refers to that. And, and I, I think what you do is better than what we would even do in English. Uh, because we don't even attempt to translate it in English. We just see uh, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And I think for most of us, we move by that and we don't even think of that as a person's name or, or, or as a specific name, a proper name. Uh, but it's actually a proper name. And we'll look at that in just a moment. But if you will, turn, hold your place in Exodus and turn to Psalm chapter 9. And I want you to turn there because as I was preparing this week and meditating on these texts, this is why us doing what we're going to do today and next Sunday is so significant. Okay? Psalm chapter 9, verse 10, 
And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. If you underline in your copies of Scripture, I would encourage you to underline that text. Uh, Commit that to memory even. And those who know your name. There's significance there. The psalmist sees that significance. For those who know your name put their trust in you. And we're going to find if we don't know the name of the Lord, if we don't know His name, we will not know Him. But those who know His name trust in Him, and He has not forsaken those uh, who seek Him. And the psalmist is writing that and speaking it to the Lord and said, they do not, uh, you have not forsaken those who seek you. Uh, already we have seen that God remembered uh, His covenant with Abraham. And I want to qualify that statement for just a minute uh, so that there's no confusion, okay? Uh, oftentimes when we say we remember something, it is because we have done what? We have forgotten something. That's not what we're talking about. Uh, when we speak of God remembering something, uh, we are not saying that He has forgotten. Oh, and now He remembers. That's not what we're saying. He has never forgotten. He doesn't forget. When we hear that God remembered something, it is a cue for us to know that He is getting ready to do something that He has promised beforehand. So when we read in Scripture, the Lord remembered. It wasn't like He forgot and all of a sudden, oh my goodness, I just forgot. No, it is He is getting ready to do something. And so when we hear, and we have already read, that God has remembered His covenant, remembered His people, it's because He's getting ready uh, to do something. He's about to do something that He has previously promised. Uh, and we have already seen that. After 430 years, God has come back to where He left off, so to speak. Have you ever been working on a project? You stopped it. You leave it. You come back to it, and you pick up where you left off. Uh, maybe some things have changed a little bit, but you're able to get back with it. Well, in some way, that is what God is doing. He had promised that His people would go into Egypt, and they would be there for 400 years. And now, 430 years later, He comes back to that point, and He is getting ready to do what He said He was going to to do even earlier than 430 years, but 430 years from the time that they go in. This is huge. Uh, probably a good thing to pause here for a moment and be reminded that God keeps all of His promises. He keeps all of His promises. He keeps all of His promises all the time and always in His time. So, I was thinking about that. If you're wondering, is Christ really going to return? That would be a reasonable question, isn't it? Israel goes into Egypt 70 strong, and there are a handful of their family members that are already there. They probably, when they go in, it's Jacob going in, so the grandson of Abraham, the promise was made to Abraham. 
then they probably did a better job of transmitting those promises. But we know that that promise came to Jacob. So when Jacob goes into Egypt with his family, he knows the promise that God has made to his grandfather and has passed on to him. So think about it for just a moment. Probably the first hundred years comes, when's God coming back? Maybe they even lose track of time because they know they're going to be there for 400 years if that message is being passed on. But just think about it. Do you suppose they ever came to the place that they wondered, is He going to keep His promise? Is He coming back? Will we be delivered? Or did every day turn into another tomorrow where we don't know God. We don't know where He is. We don't know if He's forgotten us. Maybe they had no real connection with God. The point is, is that we can live life as if Christ is not going to return. Now, we know that Scripture tells us that Christ is going to return. But do you live, do we live with the anticipation of His return as if it's real? The point is, is this picture of what's taking place in the Exodus is a picture of what God has planned and is doing in His whole work of redemption. Yes? Christ is coming again. Israel waited 430 years to be delivered from Egypt. And though a very real and true and, I would say, verifiable Historical occurrence, redemptively speaking, it was a picture of God's work for all of human history. God remembered His people and His promise, and He is acting. That's what He's doing in the Exodus. And let me say one other thing, um, if I may, and just kind of uh, impress this over all that we are reading in Exodus. Um, notice that when you're reading in Exodus, that the hardship and the crisis is peaking. And it is when that hardship and that crisis peaks, when it seems most unimaginable and unmanageable and unsurvivable, that's whenever God begins to remember, when He begins to act. Why? Because then we can know and will know that it is God who is acting. It is not our doing. In the same way that it is not the lost person's doing to come to God. It is when we are at that place that we sang just a moment ago. At our death, at our grave, so to speak, in sin. That God does His work and brings life. So we've seen how he keeps his covenant, but we have also seen last week how he chooses, how he calls out, how he commissions, and how he empowers a deliverer. This week I was reminded that if we were working through all this ourselves, think about it just a minute, and the objective was to free and enslave people, what would we probably do? Thought about it? Well, I'm thinking that probably what I would do is that I would make sure that there was a new ruler on the throne that was sympathetic and wanted to free the people. 
That would make the most sense, wouldn't it? In our mind, let's just get another leader. Let's get a leader that is sympathetic to, 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 to what we're trying to do. God certainly could have done that. He could have put another Pharaoh there. Instead of putting a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph, He could have had a Pharaoh there that still remembered what Joseph had done and said, man, there's no way in the world. Joseph, 400 years ago, saved our lives. We are not going to enslave his family anymore. He could have done that. But that's not what he did, is it? That's not what he did. He could have even raised up an Egyptian delegation to say, Hey, hey, all of this is wrong. We're too good for this. We can't enslave people this way. And they could have gone and, and they could have beat the drum for freedom. Isn't that kind of what happened here even in our own nation and even in the world during the slave trade? People beat the drum and said, no, it's wrong, we can't do this. But that's not what he did. No, he called out a son of Israel, one directly related to those who were in bondage who needed to be set free. And he called that one out from among them to deliver them. Your mind is probably already tracking along the path and leading you to think, oh, wait a minute, that's exactly what God did with Christ, isn't it? His own Son. He was sent in the flesh and He came up from among the people to do what? We rehearsed it in Matthew over and over again. To what? To save His people from their sins. You see, we would never do what God does the way God does it. We would never do that because we're not God. So let's look at our text. God has remembered. He's about to do something. He's about to act. And before we read the text, I, I want us to be reminded of a few things that we've mentioned uh, in the past two weeks. First, God is calling out His people for certain purposes. This is not some arbitrary act in some arbitrary time. God is calling His people out for their purposes, and these purposes rest in the redemptive role they will have among the nations, pointing to a redemptive work and their role in this, and they're about to be brought into the presence of God and to learn what it means to worship Him. But there are two things that for the moment are preventing that from happening. The first, these people are in bondage, they're enslaved, and they need to be delivered. And second, they don't know God. Do you get that? They're in bondage and they don't know God. Those two things are getting ready to change. That's what the Exodus is about. Those two things are getting ready to change. And they happen in conjunction with one another. So hold on to these two things. And remember, you can't worship a God you don't know. That was the whole purpose of Psalm 9:10. You worship and follow the God you know. And if you don't know Him, you can't worship Him. 
chapter 3 of Exodus. We'll read the whole chapter. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God, Sinai. Going to go back there again. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I'll turn aside to see this great sight, why this bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and a broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I'll send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, this shall be the sign for you, for I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you, sent me to you. God said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go. Gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they'll listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. 
But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I'll stretch out my hand and I'll strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask for her Ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in the house for silver and gold, jewelry, and for clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so you will plunder the Egyptians. Now let's be reminded of what just happened. Moses has just encountered the God of the universe. It had never happened before with him. As far as we know, we have no recollection of that. He encountered the very God who makes the ground around this flaming bush, mind you, that is not consumed, makes it holy and instructs Moses to remove his sandals. Why? That is sanctified soul. God is present. I'm reminded of how those of us who serve in the Muslim communities in Ghana will remove our shoes before stepping on uh, their straw prayer mats. Y'all will remember that. In fact, that is a no-no. You don't step on them with your shoes. It's certainly not the same. Certainly not. But in their minds, these mats are sacred. They are the mats with which they bow to pray. They place their face, their hands down on these mats. You never see them on their mat with their shoes on. If we need to pass through an area and there's a mat in the way, we take our shoes off if we have to pass over the mat. When they invite us to come and sit on their mats with them to talk, we take our shoes off and we get on those mats. Well, God's presence had sanctified that area, and it was holy ground. Already, Moses is learning something about God that he had not known and encountered before, at least not experientially. And I want to pause here for just a moment. Every week, we are blessed right here in this place, and in our YDM, and our CDM, we are blessed to hear in so many wonderful ways the objective statements of truth that one must believe to be saved. Every week. We read them in Scripture. We sing them in our hymns and songs. We rehearse them in our prayers. And occasionally we'll recite them together in some statement of faith or creed. And let me say that these cannot be replaced with feelings, emotions, or even thoughts that add to or take away or somehow just try to trump these truths. Those truths that we rehearse every week are incredibly important and they cannot be, cannot be replaced. God has stated them. He's given them to us. But I want you to hear this. We can hear them. We can recite them. 
but never experience in a very real and intimate way the God who has stated these truths and thus we will never know God. Why mention this? It was important for Moses to know God to serve Him. That is the reason that God is revealing Himself to Moses in this way. He was going to be God's agent to deliver His people and for Him to deliver them. He had to know God. And the people must come to know God. You know why we prayed earlier for our If Then event next Saturday? We have been praying for the month. This Wednesday we'll have an opportunity to pray and fast again. That being one of the things that we're praying for. You know why? Because God is the only one who can reveal Himself to someone else. And we want to be faithful to state the truth of God's Word, but we are absolutely dependent upon God and His Spirit to awaken the hearts and minds of those ladies and girls that will be present in the same way that we are dependent upon that happening here today. It is the only way that we will know God. There is something to the experience and intimate involvement with God, and God knows that. There were a group of people, over a million, who maybe, hopefully, some of them had passed down the tradition of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and had heard some of those truths. And we have reason to believe that some of that happened because of the midwives trusting in God. But to our knowledge, none of them had had this kind of intimate experience and encounter with God. The people needed to come to know God. And this is what we're going to find as we continue in Exodus. Is that Exodus is a continual story of the Israel encountering God experientially. Why? Because He was saving them and He was taking them to a place that He had promised them. So please hear these truths. Believe them. But even more, long to know the God who these truths point us to. Long to know Him. Long for that continual experience with Him as He leads us and guides us to our eternal promised land. Now Moses encountered God and God instructed him as to what He wants him to do. So look at verse 10. What does He want him to do? Well, He tells him. He says, come. He doesn't say go. He says, come. If someone says go, what are they saying whenever they're telling you to go somewhere? 
that they are not going with you. You go. It may be a stretch. It may be a stretch. Jesus said, go into all the world. But then he turned around and said, but I'm going to be with you. But there is, if I say, ask you to go somewhere, most likely I am referencing a place that I will not go with you. But if I say, come, what am I doing? I'm saying, come, and I am going to be there. God says, come. I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And what is Moses' first question? It's built around a great challenge. How do I identify to the people the God that I just encountered? How do I tell them who He is? How do I convince them, convey to them that this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, how do I let them know who He is? How will they know that I really encountered God and that He has actually sent me to you? How, how am I going to do that? How many times have you ever wondered how you will tell someone about the God that you have encountered? The God that you, you, you can't see but you trust. The God that you say you follow but you can't prove Him. The God that you pray to. When you're talking with lost friends, even this week, how will you explain to them the, the, the reason that you were here today? This is more than just a gathering of a group of people and friends. We could do that at Buffalo Wild Wings. We could gather around somebody's, well, not a grill today. Adam's not going to go out in the rain and grill, <laughs> grill today. But the point is, this is not just a gathering. This is a gathering of the body of Christ and friends of the body of Christ gathered around Him and the worship of Him. We have read His Word. We've heard it read. We've sang it. We have prayed it. We have looked to Him. We have pointed to Him in all that we do. This is unique to this. This is what we do. But how do you, how do you explain that to the person that you come in contact with this afternoon or tomorrow that is not a believer and has no sense or understanding of who God is. I think Moses is probably asking the right question. How in the world, God, do I ever explain to them about the encounter that I've had with you? What is your name? How do I tell them about who you are? And God's response was this. Tell them I am sent you. Now I want you to pay attention to that. God doesn't give Moses a title by which to identify God. He doesn't give him a title. He gives him a proper name. And we say it's a verb. <laughs> no, God's very deliberate in this. This is a proper name. This is my name. I am. 
of all the things that he could have told Moses, he said, my name is I am. This is no joke with God. Moses has asked for a name. He didn't ask for a title. He didn't ask for a title. That's not what he asked for. He doesn't give him a label. He gives him his name. God gives him what he is going to be most known for. Booney, when we get the Lord, always says Yahweh. Almost always. Six thousand eight hundred and twenty-eight times in the Old Testament, that is the name that is used for God. The name that He gave Moses to tell His people, this is who sent me. You think it's important? Yeah, it's important. Tremendously important. Because it's the name of God. It's the reason why this morning we looked at the psalm about the name of God. When we get to the New Testament, who is the who is the name of God? Jesus. The second person of the triune Godhead. In His name there is power. I was communicating with a friend of mine earlier this week and said, can we make too much of God's name or can we make too little of God's name? Well, if we try to take God's name in the name of Jesus and turn it into a name it, claim it thing, then we have made way more of it than God ever intended. We have perverted it. We have profaned His name. We have taken it in vain. But we can also be too little and too lighthearted with the name of God and our thoughts toward His name. The Jews had, and the reason why we have it the way we have it in the English language, and it's not translated in the English language. The reason that we have it is because they wanted to make sure that they didn't use it in vain. So they just didn't use it at all. But, but is that commendable? Well, God didn't mind telling Moses what his name was. And even told him to go tell the people what his name was. To tell Pharaoh what his name is. Because his name was that important. John Piper said it is not didn't see it as being very helpful if you cover up the name and you don't speak the very name that God gives you so that you'll know who He is. The question is, what was God communicating to Moses when He is giving him His proper name? Well, the first thing, I, I believe, is that He is saying that I define who I am and I name myself. Think about that for just a moment. I define who I am and I name myself. It's just, you know, I believe it's important. He didn't leave it to Moses to try to explain him. He didn't leave it to Moses to name him. He didn't leave it to Moses to define him. Don't you just love it when you hear someone say, I like to think of God as. I like to think of God as. And I'm reminded of a story that I read one time that had to do with Mark Dever. 
and, and you, for those of you who will know something of him, you'll appreciate this. He was teaching a class at Southern Seminary. And uh, he was teaching it on the attributes of God. So, you know, he was given a classical, historical, reformed, orthodox presentation of God's attributes. And uh, one of the men in the class, his name was Bob, uh, was upset with Mark and was saying, uh, clearly he disagreed with him. And so he raised his hand. He said, Mark, you know, I like to think of God as omniscient, but not meddling. I like to think of him as just, but not nitpicky. He said, I, I, I like to think of him as sovereign, but not overbearing. And it kind of went on along the way. Well, after he'd finished, Mark said, thank you, Bob. But we're not here to talk about what you think. And we're not here to talk about you. He said, we are here to talk about God. So, Let's go back to looking at what the Bible has to say about who God is and His attributes. The point is, is that God names Himself and defines Himself. We don't get a right to do that. Because we haven't made God. We haven't created Him. We haven't formed Him. God names Himself and defines Himself because He knows who he is. And we can't say that in the same way. We can only define ourselves in the terms which God defines us biologically and spiritually. I'm a man and I'm a sinner. If you're not a man here today, then you're a woman and you're a sinner. That's how God defines us. Notice that there's a second thing that it means when he says that I am. He is stating that I'm self-existent. I just, I am. Now, I was created, me, Jimmy. Every other being is a created being, but God isn't. God isn't. He's eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. He is, he is self-existent. Now I want you to... Think about that for just a moment. Now all of these things, have, they have implication on what he is going to direct Moses to do and what he does with his people. And all of these things have direct implication on who we are. He is eternal. He says, I am. Meaning that I am the same now as I was then in eternity and as I will be in eternity. I am. In other words, I don't change. I don't change. My values are not going to change. Nothing about me is going to change. He is as we Looked as we study systematic theology, he is, he is immutable. He doesn't change. When he says, I am, he is saying that I am the absolute reality. That everything about me is real and full and there is no reality 
outside of who I am. There's no reality outside of me because I have created everything. I have formed everything. I have fashioned everything. And he's telling Moses this, and he's just saying, Moses, just tell him that I am. I am. Moses, I am. I am truth. What I have said, what I am saying, and what I will say will always be true. And this drives the three things that he says to Moses that are foundational to what God is speaking in the Exodus and what He speaks to us in the Gospel. What are those three things? One, let's look and see what He says in verse 16. I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt and I promise that I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt. One is I am compassionate. I am compassionate. God is not an unfeeling God. In the sense that He is, doesn't just look at us without care or concern. Everything in Scripture points us to the fact that God is a compassionate God. He is a compassionate God. Our ladies are getting ready to enter into a study of First John. At the end of First John, there is a statement that is pointing to the fact that God is love. And it is in that love and out of that love and growing out of that love and compassion which is a righteous love and compassion. The very nature and the heart of it is unlike what we are able to, in and of ourselves, apart from the Spirit of God in us, to accomplish and to see carried out. But God is compassionate, and He is looking upon these people with compassion. But notice what else He's doing. What is it about the people that calls God to show compassion to them? Is it that the people are good and righteous? Are the people deserving of deliverance? Does their suffering in and of itself mean that they deserve in some way to be delivered? Now God is pointing Moses to this work, and we're going to see it particularly next week as we begin to look at the glory of God. Over and over again, He is pointing to nothing but sheer grace. Nothing but grace and the fulfillment of the promise of the covenant. So we have those three things. We have the grace of God. We have the keeping of His covenant. And we have His compassion. Now I want us to close our time together by turning to Ephesians chapter 1. Because we're not looking at the historical event just for to bear out and say this was an actual historical event. No, 
this event is pointing us to the work that God has promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Okay? When the seed of the serpent would be at enmity with the seed of the woman, and the serpent would strike at the heel, the seed of the woman would crush the head. I'll kind of give you a little insight into this. Who was Pharaoh? He was the seed of the serpent. What is God going to do to Pharaoh? He is going to crush Pharaoh's head. Ephesians 1, verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to hear this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of of His will. To the praise of His glorious grace, which which He has blessed us in the Beloved, our Deliverer, our Redeemer. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. We have just heard His grace His covenant keeping and His compassion. Don't miss that. It was said earlier, the psalmist said, those who know your name, they follow you, they love you, they serve you, they worship you. We cannot worship who we don't know. And God has shouted to us from the Exodus, His name, and He has shouted to us in Christ Jesus His purpose, His name, His glory. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, we'll find out next week that Israel, even out of the gate, said, no way, we're not following you anywhere. Right out of the gate. And we would have said, all right. And God said, no, you're not. (laughs) You might not follow me, but you're going to go 
where I say go. It's incredible. Incredible. What do we do? Well, if you're here today and you haven't trusted Christ, know today that if He is speaking to your heart, you can follow Him and believe in Him. And a believer, please take, please take hope in this, is that God has acted on your behalf in grace and in covenant keeping and in compassion. And He has loved you with His Son, the Deliverer, by shedding His blood for your sin, atoning for you, giving His life for you, for you. And promising you eternity with Him. And God does what He says He's going to do. Every time and always in His time. Will you pray with me? Father, all we know is that You have said that You have loved us in Christ and we know that we don't deserve it. Every one of us today here, Father, who profess You will say, apart from Your grace, I, I, I would not be. We don't deserve Your love. We don't deserve Your compassion and care. But You have us in Your grace, loved us, and saved us. Thank You. Thank You, Lord. Thank You. We bless You and praise You. Help us, Father, to see Your glory in Your name, in the Lord Jesus Christ, in Your work. And Father, Drill Your Word into us. Drill it deep. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.